Hi guys and welcome back to another week's episode of Third Culture Africans. My guest this week blew me away. Um, oftentimes it's difficult to articulate and share what happens beyond trauma or having to be reborn. And my guest this week is such an incredible soul. He is Vamba Sharif. And I ended our chat asking him a question and realizing that his work already answers that. To know him and to know his heart is to read his work. And he has spent the better part of his career reclaiming his past and sharing with the world the love that has seen him through some of the toughest times in his life and in life as we know it. What happens to a man with nothing to lose? I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did sitting with Vamba. It felt like food for my soul and I, and I hope it does for you because his energy is so incredible. Um, and his journey is so beautiful. Um, hope you enjoy this and catch you again next week. Welcome to another episode of Third Culture Africans. I am your host, Zezo Sal. I created the show as a resource for our community of Africans and African diaspora. A safe and honest place to share, inspire, motivate, and most importantly, celebrate those in our communities doing purposeful work and shifting the needle on our culture. Your support is invaluable to the show, so please subscribe or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and leave us a review on your favorite streaming platform. You are valid, you are strong, and you are just getting started. Hi, Vamba. Thank you for joining us on this week's episode of Third Culture Africans. Hi, Zizi. Thank you for inviting me here. Amazing. <laughs> so I was saying before we came on air that, you know, the nature sounds of the birds in the background is absolutely alluring. I think this is this is the first episode that has like the tranquil background to go with it <laughs> naturally. Um, so I'm I'm loving it. Thank you. I mean, I feel like I mean on this on this island, I'm alone, and and I'm receiving this call from far, and uh, you know, I'm yeah. in my element, and it's, it's <laughs> quite it. yeah, it's quite surreal actually. That like, I'm sure normally you would have to travel to some like a studio or somewhere to to, mm-hmm. and then it's a it's a new environment, and we've learned a lot from being in the pandemic. Um, Indeed. And and yeah. one of the things is actually we can have more comfort to how we work, which I'm I'm loving exploring. So each guest gets a, an introduction, which I hopefully get all your multi hyphenates in terms of who you are career wise. Mm. Mm. You're a film critic, essayist, mm. novelist, author, motivational speaker, and speaker, and also an activist. Yes. Did I miss anything? No, you didn't. I think that's that's about it all. <laughs> just a, just only that. Yeah, just only that. Uh, 
And I do double in acting sometimes. <laughs> okay. I knew it. I knew it. I knew there was something. I knew there was something. But thank you so much for, for being on the show. I think for a long time, I think um, going into season two, one of my goals was really to be able to bring stories and share journeys from the continent. And I think like the rest of the world, and for most Africans, I think we all witnessed in our lifetimes, the civil war in Liberia. Mm-hmm. And that, okay, so for anyone who doesn't know you, you're Liberian. And that really has shaped who you are, has shaped your work, has shaped your career to date. And I guess I, I would love to start there. So life pre the civil war for you and your family, like anyone from Liberia at the time, you know, you suffered a huge loss or huge losses as it were but 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 before life before the civil war looked and felt like what yeah thank you so much i think the civil war was very definitive not only for me but for every liberian i think there is not a single liberian who was not spared by this war who was not affected by this war it's so terrible that even up to this moment, we are still reeling from the effect of that war. Before the war, I grew up in northern Liberia in a town called Kolahon. It's a town that borders with Guinea and Sierra Leone. So as a result, because of uh, its location in the geography of Liberia, I grew up speaking different tongues, different languages. I'll come to all seven in a minute. Yes. (laughs) This podcast is sponsored by Malay Natural Science. Malay's products are inspired by the rich landscapes, alluring scents, and ancient wisdom of Africa. Their luxurious fragrance and body care range balances 100% natural active ingredients and scientifically proven formulas to heal, protect, and pamper your skin. Malay ships worldwide and you can buy their products at maleeonline.com. They also offer a free sample if you'd like to try. So I grew up in this beautiful, very vibrant, lively compound, Sharif Quarter. That's that's what it was called in Kolahan. So with, with uncles, aunts, brothers, sisters, my mother, my grandmother, very lively. A very African setting because, you know, in most African families' roles are very defined. The boys, we have our roles cut out for us. In the mornings, we wake up early morning, we clean the compound, we fetch water, and then take shower before going to school. That's how our day... And, oh, have breakfast, which consisted usually of uh, rice porridge. We call it money. It's a Monday word. It's very popular in Liberia. Perhaps you should try it one day. It's not a normal rice porridge that you have. It's rice balls, mm. pounded rice, and then made into balls, little balls, and then boiled. Do you have Do you have it sugared. with milk? Yes, we have it with milk. With yes. milk and sugar. Yes. Nice. Yummy. It's very delicious. Yummy, yummy, yummy. In every book I've ever written, I think you find it. <laughs> but there's a relationship between food and African culture. Yeah. So... Life was beautiful, right? Mm-hmm. It, was, it was. was full of love, community. Yes, it was. And it remained that way until I left. I left for reasons that I tried to explore in the memoir just, uh, that I wrote. But I left before the war. And so I was not in Liberia when this terrible, terrible tragedy occurred. 
and I was elsewhere. I was in Kuwait. I had gone there to pursue my studies, secondary school, high school, we call it, we say in Liberia. So why Liberia was being confronted with this terrible, terrible, unprecedented tragedy, why I was there, why I was in Kuwait leading my life and you know, worried about uh, the family that I left behind in Liberia, war came to like, Kuwait too. Yes, the Gulf War. And so where you are supposed to go to, there is war and where you are, and, there is war. And home so, is war. Home, and home is, is war. war. So, so no both, both homes, yes, it was so terrible. But then you're an outsider in someone mm-hmm. else's war. Yeah. And you're unable to return home mm-hmm. because there's war at home. Mm-hmm. So where does that leave you? Stranded, confused. Orphaned in a way. Yes, orphaned in many, in many, many ways. And asking yourself on a daily basis, what do I do? How do I deal with this new and terrible situation? When this war came, I was awake. I remember, I think it was August the 2nd, uh, when this was 1990. I was awake because I couldn't sleep. Because it was as if, you know, some people, you have this premonition of something terrible happening. It was as if we were prepared for this war and not believing that it could happen. You see it coming, but you are telling yourself and believing it. I don't think it's going to happen. Is it a day to night shift or is it a slow simmer where things get more unsafe? Because usually for for anyone outside of the environment, we're seeing the news reports, right? And the news reports are always following where the action is. And then we see the aftermath, right? And, you know, we've had in the last sort of five years, we've watched almost every year African countries go through various civil wars. Yes. In the case of Liberia, it was a gradual process. And that's what I try to explore in my work, in my first novel, Land of My Fathers, in which I tried to know what were the reasons behind what happened to my country. And I felt I could answer those questions by going back to the beginning, to the founding of the country in the 19th century by the freed Africans who had left the United States, who had dreamed of returning back home, you know, because Home was this almost mythical, mythical Yes, Africa. it was Liberian Sierra Leone that had the return. Yes, 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 mm. indeed. And so they returned this to this very strange place. And they were very different in many ways. They were Christians, very Americans in many ways. Not this, they were black but on their skins, but they were very Americans. You know, so Africa was just almost mythical. So when they returned to, to this Africa and they were confronted with this very strange cultures, you know, they were like, wow, you know, what is this place? And they decided to make the best out of it because you've made the choice. Well, they have nowhere else to go. They, you know, they have nowhere else, to, nowhere else to go. And from the very beginnings, some of them saw the difficulties, the challenges that they would face, those challenges being foremost, how to integrate with the brothers and sisters they've met on the African coast. You had to unite with them. Some of them thought the best way was to try to integrate the Africans into their way of life. The visionaries among them said, look, what we have to do is to try to be at peace with our brothers and sisters, you know, and not to try to look down upon them, you know, and some did take that stand, you know, like we are better. You know, and some said, no, we are not. We are the same, you know. And I think that, that friction, that tension that existed, you know, remained until 
1980 with the coup and which later led to the civil war because there was this disturbance in the balance of Liberia. A civil war that can be explained not only with what happened in the beginning, but also on the international community with the fall of the Berlin War and things. You know, so so many other reasons. And then you, ha you had this war in which brothers and sisters were confronting brothers and sisters. It was an all-out war, brutal in every way. And I was away, um, and my, the rest of my family was in Liberia. But then you didn't even have enough time to have survivor's remorse because where you were also well, then... Yes. Oh, oh, yes. There, were, there uh, wasn't uh, enough time to even have survivor's remorse. Not at all. Not at all. Because... What we were confronted with in Kuwait was this lack of order. Because just imagine this was one of the richest countries in the world at that time. And then when this invasion happened, occupation, all the supermarkets were looted. In, in a few days, you couldn't find food in Kuwait. Just where I live, we had, I think, about five supermarkets. But they were all looted. And so where do you get the food? So you're hearing reports of home. You can't even grieve because... Yes, the BBC is reporting about war, you know, reaching all parts of the country. And then you are confronted also with the reality of not surviving, the possibility that you might not survive yeah. the next day. Wow. And so we're eating bread that we have, you know, before the country was so rich, you know, after a, a day, a day old bread, we don't eat it. You know, and now you were eating like a week old bread. Yes, and something. You're, you're eating what and, you find. Yes, and being very grateful for finding that bread to eat. But we knew in the long run what, what we had to do something because, you know, the international community was promising we are going to uh, liberate Kuwait. And we're saying, we're not saying the liberation. This was, we're talking about August, September, October, November. Nothing is happening. Four months, you're under the occupation. You know, and people are talking about liberating. And that's when in December we decided, all right, we have to do something. We have to leave this place. And how do you go? How do you escape? All the borders were closed. So the only way we thought that we could escape was through Iraq itself. And by smuggling, you know, we we bribed Iraqi drivers. We paid, I think it was $500 per person. So first, for first, you would have had to have been able to get to the bank to take out that money at some point. We didn't have, there was no, all the, most of the banks were burned. And we are very fortunate. I, I was doing a part-time job after school. And I was very, very fortunate that my brother who was keeping that money because I wasn't old enough to have a bank account. So the last money that I had accumulated from a weak job, that money he had not you know, put that money on the bank when the invasion happened. That's the money that saved us. <laughs> wow. So with that money, we were able to bribe an Iraqi driver to smuggle us across the border through Iraq. I mean, it's a huge country. We traveled all night. I described that journey in my memoir. Very, very scary. Because if we are caught, that was going to be the end. And then what, what is this future you're going to? You, you, yes. have, you have no idea. You don't, you don't know. But all you know is you have to live to see tomorrow. You have to live, yes. You have to. Because it has, life has become unbearable. You know, you are living in this constant... Just imagine, we, our nights became days and days became night. We slept during the day and we're awake at night. Because you don't know what is going to happen. Yeah, you have to be hypervigilant. Yes. So after months, four months, more than four months under the occupation, and a terrible brutality. I saw crimes committed over there that was so horrible. And I have tried to talk about 
those crimes that were committed. For example, in my memoir, I try to talk about the strength of the Arab women. You know, we have this perception of Arab women as being very passive, you know, as being very, you know, people being subjugated. They're the opposite, actually. They are the opposite. And I saw how powerful those Arab women were. They rose up and they were fighting in the occupation. Kuwaiti women, they admire me so much that in this memoir, I mean, I deliberately went out of my way to pick that episode as one of the main thread of my narrative to show my admiration for them. Just how strong they were. They survived because they were brutalized. Terrible crimes were committed against the Kuwaiti women, but they were able to survive. So I'm very, very thankful. I saw the power and the strength of the human spirit. And we so we, we escaped. And we went through Iraq, uh, drove the, in, the whole night. And in the morning, we arrived sometime before noon. We arrived at the border with Jordan. And that's where we are dumped, literally, because that's the end. Then we had to leave from that border to go to Amman. So at this point, you're armed with Arabic, you're armed with French, and you're armed with your own local Sort yes, of languages. Four, five, yes, languages, rich languages. So your your knowledge and ability to speak Arabic is helping you navigate this treacherous. Yes, when journey. I left, when I yes, when I left Kuwait, I could speak Arabic better than any other language. You know, if you could see me in Kuwait, I mean, I sounded like a Kuwaiti. You could not tell by hearing me that I came from from somewhere else. And so you're you're navigating purely because of your ability to speak this language. Yeah, yes. It, it helped at a certain point, but when we arrived at the border with the intention of going to Amman, actually our idea was to go to Amman and see whether we could go, we could return to one of those neighboring countries, Guinea, Sierra Leone, or even Africa. So yeah, you're attempting to get back on the continent now. Oh yes, that was the idea. But then what we didn't know was that Jordan was not receiving refugees at least advocating on the radio, telling people that refugees were welcome. But that was not the case. So you arrived there and... We arrived there and then we took the taxi. We had some money left from this for my savings. So we took a taxi to bring us a bus, actually, to Jordan. And so we're in this bus with some other refugees leaving Iraq, going to Jordan. I think we drove for like two hours and we saw the soldiers standing on the way. And so they stopped our bus and said they wanted to know who we were. So we said, we're Liberians. And so, so they said, no, you cannot go to Jordan. Only Arabs were allowed to go to Jordan. <laughs> and this is your last bit of money. This, yes. So what happened from then? It was the worst I've ever experienced. You know, you're thinking I've fled the worst. I've experienced the worst. You know, I've looked war in his eye. I've looked invasion. I've looked brutality, inhumanity in the eye. I've survived. I'm now almost, you know, at the cusp of touching freedom and seeing freedom gliding away. And so we're taken out of that bus and just across the road in this desert, we saw hundreds, if not thousands of tents. It was a refugee camp, Zizi. But you're not allowed in. No, we're, not, we're allowed to stay in the refugee camp, but not allowed in the country. This was enormous land between Jordan and Iraq. And that's where all refugees were not welcomed in Jordan. That's where they were dumped. With no uh, perspective, you know, you, you don't know how you're going to survive the next day. We didn't even have a tent. Actually, after we were dumped, I think the temperature was 45 degrees. 
And hell, we saw this person from the UNHCR, from this refugee organization. So we asked the man, we need some tent to sleep. So the man said, you would be very lucky if you have a tent, you know, in a degree, 45 degrees centigrade. So you're probably haven't eaten, haven't showered, no, haven't, no. you are without money. You have no idea where your tomorrow is coming from. And this is now the beginning of the future you thought you were running towards. No, 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 but you know, no future, because that's the feeling that I had. I felt this was the end. The sense of hopelessness that descended on me made me turn me into a mute. I couldn't talk. We have words so that we can express perhaps our dreams and hopes. But if you don't have that, you know, why will you talk? It's the worst thing that ever happened to me, what that experience there. I just ceased to talk. I mean, I could not talk. I don't know for how long we stayed there, maybe weeks, maybe months, but all throughout, I never spoke. I hope it never happened to a different person. I mean, it never happened to me again. So how we survived there, I think some of my brothers were very strong. They were able to face that terror through their fortitude. We were able to survive. So in the end, I don't know how long we stayed. We left the refugee camp and came to Amman, but realized that Amman could not, we didn't have money to stay in Amman, you know, because it was very expensive. So we decided to go to Syria. Syria had been telling people on the radio that refugees were welcome. So we went to Syria, we went to Damascus and stayed there for two years. So in Damascus, I met a very vibrant African community. Many Africans were using Damascus as a transit to go to Asia, other African, Asia countries, to go to Japan, for example, or to come to Europe. And so that's what we're, we're doing for two years long, trying to leave Syria. And then while we are talking, the war in Kuwait is, you know, Kuwait has been liberated, but Kuwait didn't want us anymore. You know, <laughs> so you would think, you think, all right, we're thinking, all right, we, when we reach uh, Syria, the war is over, we'll go back and lead the life we're leading before that very, you know, life of privilege and things. No way. So we, we couldn't go back. So now you can go to Liberia, which is at war. And where you are, Syria was not actually a member of the Geneva Convention. So Syria was actually making an exception to the rule. You know, so we are staying there on a temporary basis. So in the end, we have to leave Syria. So we are very fortunate enough that uh, we ended up in Holland as refugees. And then you come to a different, because in Syria, I spoke Arabic so I could survive. You know, you come to Holland, then you're you are confronted for the first time with a culture that you couldn't, you know, that is very different, a language I couldn't speak. So I had to learn a different language. But... I was fortunate because of my background as someone who was open to speaking languages easily and who grew up speaking, you know, these different African languages. I mean, it's really, really helped me, you know, to pick up the Dutch language quickly. And that's the difference that, with, that I had with others who spoke just one or two languages. They felt that speaking Dutch was a challenge, something that was impossible to do. But I saw it as an opportunity, just one of many languages that I will be able to speak. So in two years' time, I went to school and I mastered the Dutch. In my third year, I could go to university. You know, so what some people saw as almost impossible thing to do, I was fortunate enough. And as you say, as you add, because I should not appear arrogant, that circumstances conspire to make that possible for me. 
first of all, I just mentioned my background as uh, someone who spoke these different languages. And I was fortunate to have had a brother with me in Holland who told me, Vamba, you know, you can be better than the circumstances in which you are in. Focus on what you are trying to do, try to go to school. So most of us, when we migrate, and these are the challenges for migration, that we don't have people to influence us in a positive way. You know, or the environment in which, we, you know, we found ourselves influenced. Us. Some of us, you know, they lay emphasis on work. For example, they tell you, all right, Vamba, you are here now. The first thing you should do is try to, to find a job. Don't go about trying to speak a, straight, a different, a strange language. So the first thing is try to have a job, have a place to stay, have a car. So for some, is that that is the priority, you know, and that's the emphasis is laid on that, you know. And uh, but I, I was very fortunate that to have had a brother who told me, uh, Vamba, speaking a, a language, going to school is very, very important. And so it it helped me in my third year. I wanted to go to medical school and. I did not have access to it because of this very biased system that they have in, in Holland. You have this lottery system, very strange system, I don't know. You know, so it's, as a result, I decided to do law. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know, because, because perhaps because of injustices that was perpetuated against me and the injustices that I saw in the world, you know, and I wanted to do something about it. I don't know. You know, perhaps I wanted to do to bring about some positive change, and I thought I could do that through law. So I went to law school. But what was happening to me was this constant confrontation with the war in Liberia. No one could escape it. It was on the news on a daily basis. I mean, being a Liberian at that time was almost equal to being ashamed. You know, because Liberia was the headline on a daily basis, the brutalities of that war. You know, the child soldiers. Every time you said you were a Liberian at that time meant you came from a country that was, you know, committing such crime against itself. So at this point, your, your identity is stripped. It doesn't exist. Yes. How do you go from that to being the success you are today? By going back to the stories that formed me. Because before the, the war, there was a Liberia that one could be very proud of. There was a life that one could be proud of. So I felt that I had to describe that life. And I could do so in a novel, in stories. And, you know, the stories that formed me. I think it was the Senegalese director, the great writer and novelist, Simbin Usman, who said, that we are stories, which means it is we are formed by stories, you know. And uh, so I felt, let me show that aspect of Liberia to myself, you know, beginning with myself, trying to say, all right, the war might see Liberia as uh, a country waging war in itself, committing all this crime against itself. But this is the, the Liberia that I knew, you know, before the war. So I began in the first few months, of my arrival in Holland. I sat down and I had this pencil and I began to write the story of Liberia. Never written before? Never written before. And I didn't know where it was taking me. You know, I had never attempted to write a story before. No, I wrote letters before. I was very good at writing letters. I wrote long letters and uh, my brothers admired that very much. Even one of my brothers kept copies of those letters, but I never attempted to write. 
So I just sat down and this is perhaps, it was a means of dealing with the traumas, with the terrible things that were happening to bring some kind of order and to deal with these terrible things that were happening. So it was a survivor technique I was employing here. So I began to write this story. Why writing this story, it began to take shape. You know, it's very funny that while growing up, I heard stories of a remarkable man who was born in that part of Liberia where I came from. And his name was Hali, or they call him Halingi. And they said there was a point when that part of Liberia was uh, threatened by war. So it was this, the oracles had ordained that a war would come that would wipe out the people of that place. But there was one way to avert, to stop that war. And it could be done by someone willingly sacrificing himself or herself to stop that war. Not by compelling someone, no. The person will have to love the country so much or the land so much that he or she will come forward to say, all right, I'm ready to die to stop a war that will decimate my people. So according to legends, this man did exist. So according to legend, this man came forward and he said, I will do that. And and so when the war came in Liberia and, and being a, a refugee, you know, staying in this refugee center, I said, oh my God, I could use this as a parable for Liberia to say, all right, Liberia, we don't need to wage war on this side because someone has already sacrificed himself to stop this war, you know? So I wrote about him. I wrote a fictional as a character based on this man's life. And I made him to be a friend who was born into slavery in America and who left and came to Liberia and who met this remarkable man and they became friends. So the Nova is a mirror image of what Liberia can be or could be, you know. So that was my, out of that chaos and sort of that negative negativity, try to create something positive. And that's the power to me of literature, you know, because literature is always a mirror. You know, we, through literature, we see our lives and perhaps clearly, and perhaps we can see through literature. So my God, perhaps this is the, the wealth, this is the riches that we have, and perhaps we should value it. So the novel has its critical side, you know, because it deals with the war too, you know, but it's also, you know, a message to Liberians to say, all right, I may stop this war, then continue to commit crime against yourself, you know, because you have someone who had out of love for you and for your country have done this already. So that's so, writing became a therapy for me. I always say it saved my life, you know, because many migrants, we are constantly struggling with these tensions, you know, the tensions of the life we left behind, you know, and the demands it makes of us and the life that we are living, you know, so these tensions can become very dominating sometimes. It can be, it can become negative. It can, and sometimes most of us don't have a means of dealing with, with, with those tensions, you know, and I was fortunate to be, to have become a writer because as a writer, you're always an outsider who look at things from, from the outside, you know? And so you found within your words, I guess, a way to regain your power and a way to basically share your grief which in essence then became therapy (laughs) but that's like therapy on an incredibly large scale you know you speak of migration immigration and exile at times actually interchangeably and I wonder what that means for you especially when you're now tasked with being the narrator and you've chosen 
I guess, within your work to really narrate beyond your journey, but more about, you know, the place you love the most, which is Liberia. I think I'm um, all those things. I'm a migrant. I'm uh, an exile. I'm a refugee because I did flee war, but I also migrated to a country. And I am also an exile because I'm that, I've been away for so long. I've lived now as out of Liberia longer than in Liberia. And those experiences of being an exile have defined me, have made me keenly aware of what I've lost. And my novels are an attempt to reclaim that past, to recreate that past, you know, and I'm not the only one who have done that and done that so beautifully. Some other writers have come before me, African writers, for example, Ngungiwa Tiongo had to leave Kenya at a certain point, uh, Nabokov, Vladimir Nabokov, other great writers. And one of my greatest sources of inspiration, the Jewish uh, Polish writer, Isaac Singer, whose whole career was an attempt in his novels to recreate the Warsaw or the Poland before the Jews were decimated from that country. You know, so these people were my inspiration, you know, and it is inexhaustible, the wealth of stories that are are out there to be written about, even though I've not lived long in Liberia, but what the few years that I lived there is enough to define the rest of my career if I choose to write about it. And for a long time, I felt it was a kind of burden, but someone recently told me, Famba, this it's not a burden. It's actually a privilege that you are giving voice to our experiences. So it's a burden that you should carry with pride because you are giving voice to our stories. For example, the Halingi story that I told you, it belongs to, if we go back to Africa, we say it belongs to a people to which I ethnically I don't belong, you know. But the, the story, I've made it mine. And that's my privilege, you know. The privilege of a writer is that you ascend beyond ethnicity. You ascend beyond nationality. All the stories become your story. All the African stories become my story. I mean, I'm at home in South Africa. I mean, one of the countries in which I felt the most at home was in South Africa. When I saw Durban, I fell in love with the country. So South Africa belongs to me. Nigeria belongs to me. All these other countries belong to me. That's the privilege of being a writer. I don't know other Africans uh, might have that, you know, who, who are not so conscious as writers. I don't know, but I'm, I feel I'm privileged. I'm in a privileged position to be that. I wonder though, you know, as graphic as your novels are in terms of your experiences and the experiences of others, right? Because your stories do weave in other people's experiences as well. Have you ever sat back and thought, goodness, you know, what are the odds a four-time, well, in your case, probably fifth-time refugee, beating the odds of life and coming out on the other end, best-selling author who has nature sounds as a natural background, (laughs) you know, soundtrack playing out. Do you ever sit and process the odds that you beat? Yes, sometimes I do. And it's a miracle, I always say, that I'm here today because the odds against me have been so great and so huge that the very fact that I survive it up to now. You've done more than survive. Yes, it's a fortune. And it has perhaps also to do with the people who brought me up. With the, I was brought up by women and 
my grandmother and my mother who believe so much in humanity and who believe in good. My mother, she was a very successful businesswoman like you and always said, you're so kind. I don't think I yes. am. You're so <laughs> oh, kind. I'm, I'm <laughs> so she always give out money. I remember I was on, in the market with my mother one time, and this lady came to us with her child. And she told my mother that she could not afford to take care of her child and to pay the school fees because of her poverty. So my mother took this child into our home. You know, not only fed this child, but helped this child to go to school. And years later, after the war in Liberia, I met this child who had gone to university. Mm, incredible. Yes. Due to my mother. People ask her, why are you be doing this? And she would say, I'm doing this because I believe in goodness and the goodness of other human beings. I believe if I'm good to another child, one day people will be good to my own son. You know, so she believed that goodness will live through humanity, you know, echo through eternity. Because of that hope she had in human life, it has made me, despite the odds, to focus on the goodness and to, to have this hope that there's always a tomorrow. And it has helped me. I cannot say that's the only reason why I have <laughs> beaten all the odds, you know, but it has helped me along the way, the lessons from those two women. And do you feel, if you had to sum that up, would it be knowing love and being loved was the thing that kept the fire going. Oh, yes. Because I was really, really loved by those two women. You know, it enabled me to be who I am today. Actually, all the women characters in my novels are my mother and my grandmother. They are aspects of them. And people ask me, you know, when especially European readers or Western readers, they read, oh, your women are so strong. They're so resourceful. And that's I said, but those are the women I've known all my life. I'm not creating fantasy. These are the women. I'm, that's my mother. That's my grandmother. You know, very independent, very strong-minded women. And I find what, what's interesting with your recent work is the memoir or your letter to your daughter. I have two questions. Why? And my second question is around passing the torch. And I guess... With your novels, your work lives on forever. But I guess, actually, one question, why? It's a very loaded one. But Yeah, it is, it is, it is. And it's very emotional. When confronted with, the world was confronted with, the Black Lives Matter movement, with the chaos that was in the world before even the, the virus came, I wanted to go back to my essence. What is my contribution to this whole debate? What can I be most proud of after all this time? And I've been doing that indirectly through my work, but I felt I had to do this directly now. And I could do that. I could be most honest in doing that by writing about the people who meant the most to me. And that's my mother and my grandmother, the people who made me, the people who fashioned me, the people after whom I named my daughter and whose values have made my life possible, you know, whose value have made me to beat all these odds that have to others would sound impossible. And so I sat down because just remember, two years ago, before this crisis, I had attempted I was writing a novel in which there was a scene in that novel and I was writing about the death of a woman, but actually I was writing about the death of my grandmother and it was so painful that I could not write about it. So every time I would sit and then my, I would begin to tremble, 
you know, my, my body would shake. I, I mean, I could not write. I would be, tears would start falling, you know. So I stopped. So after a week or a month, I'll go back to the same thing. It will not happen. It will not work for me. So after a year, I tried it. it so I stopped writing that novel entirely. But now, last year, we were confronted with this tragedy. Very unprecedented. Ter so terrible. So I felt now or never, because I don't know what was, what was going to happen. You go out, you know, maybe something else will happen. So now I have to write this story. Yes, I have to tell the world, you know, what my mother, what those women and the values you know, and the stories of those two women. So I have to do it now or never. So that's when I decided to do something that would have been impossible to do if not for this crisis. And so I sat down for like in six months time, the memoir was written because my grandfather deemed give his mother's name to my mother. And my mother was the first daughter of my grandfather. And he was so proud of her. You know, he was so proud of her that I grew up hearing my grandmother telling me how proud her husband was, my grandfather was, of his daughter, a woman. You know, he was so proud that because of the pride and the love he gave to my mother, my mother became the most successful of all his children, the men, both men and women. So I believe, all right, if a child is loved so much, and that love is enough to make a child a very successful person. You know, because I've seen it happening to me. You know, it has happened to me. It happened to me. I was brought up. I was loved by these two people. You know, so I, let me share the story of these people with the world and what they meant to me. Let me share this with the world. So I was very privileged. It was a very emotional journey because those people were victims of the war. You know, but I felt I had to do it. Beautiful. Yes. My last question, and I guess maybe you've thought about it or perhaps not, but, and I think that the question of your work, even though you don't explicitly say it, but it's what happens to a man with nothing to lose? That's what it is, yes. That's the theme. And so such a person will have to dig deep in himself or herself. But you've created something beautiful and your answer to that question is full of purpose and it's full of service. Thank you. And thank you for being so vulnerable and open in your work and, and and thank you for answering that question as openly as you do in your work because I think oftentimes when we're faced with challenges there are several ways to answer that question and the you are an example and your choices are an example of how that question can be answered so thank you so much. Thank you. It was incredible. Oh my God. <laughs> Thank you so much. Where, where, so where can our listeners find you? My website, www.bambasharif.com, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, or just Google my name. My books are also in English. Well, your so, books are in five languages. Indeed. <laughs> so yes, uh, they can reach, always reach out to me with questions and uh, through Facebook or through Insta or through other medium. So amazing. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Third Culture Africans. We are building a community of leaders and game changers and would love you to join in the conversation on thirdcultureafricans.com. 
Subscribe for news, for tips and more useful resources on today's topic and more episodes to ignite and inspire your entrepreneurial journey. Carry on the conversation on Facebook and Instagram at Third Culture Africans. Your ratings and reviews are important to us, so please leave one on your favorite streaming platform and help us amplify our voices. Until next time, you are valid, you are strong, and you are just getting started.